You're listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Our guest today is Sammy Tucker. After losing most of her left arm in a motorcycle accident, Sammy went on to become a Paralympic archery champion. That's right, she shoots with one hand. She was the first woman to represent the USA in the Open Compound Para-Archery Division in the 2016 Paralympics in Rio. In this episode, she shares her amazing and inspiring story of overcoming a history of abuse, depression, and drug addiction, and moving toward a life of meaning, purpose, and joy. Carlos, tell me about this wonderful friend of yours who's joining us this evening for this podcast. Wow, that, that's that's a lot of pressure, Satch. I'm going to accept that challenge. Okay. Um, even though I probably won't come close to what she's really about, I'm going to tell you what my perception is of this beautiful human being that we have here tonight. On the Authenticity Show is Sammy Tucker. Sammy, to me, Satch, mm-hmm. is very inspiring because since I've met her, um, she has thrown herself into a place of charismatic vulnerability, I would say. Ooh, like, charismatic vulnerability. Yeah, it's like she's allowing herself to shine and also be vulnerable at the same time. And it seems like she's found this magic place, mental, psychological place that she can operate from that comes across consistently as charismatic, and yet it's totally uh, gentle, open, loving, authentic, even sometimes self-deprecating. Mm. Um, and it's uh, infectious because everybody mm. in the room wants to connect with her. Everybody who hears her speak wants to um, really listen. They lean in. They um, they want to hear what she has to say. Wow. And uh, the things that I hear you say, Sammy, are always really positive. They're centered on um, uh, people stepping into who they really are and making a difference, a real difference in whatever way they're meant to do that. Like I, I've noticed that in the videos that I've seen of you too, you talk a lot about um, being yourself, believing in yourself, no matter what you are, what you've been in your past, accepting yourself, loving yourself for that. That's big because a lot of people are dragging the baggage around and it affects the light that they could potentially be shining out in the world. And I, I really see you as a person who's um, helping people to open that up. I feel more like being authentic around you. And I love authenticity. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, when you say Satch the other night, yeah. I showed you some stuff. Yeah, you know, uh, Car- Carlos had said, to, oh, we're going to have uh, my friend Sammy Tucker on the show. I said, okay, well, what's, you know, he, he said, well, she's a, a para-Olympian. She's an archer. I just thought, okay, that just sounds cool. And then he showed me a couple of videos of you speaking. And when I heard you talk, I thought, oh, now I get it. I see. This is really about who you are and what you have to say is, is, is why you're here, right? Um, yeah, it's cool that you're an archer and, and uh, you're an archer with one hand. And that's fascinating, but that's not why you're here. You're here because of what you say. Yeah, for, for lack of um, maybe another word for it or something. Uh, soul family, that deeper part of me, whatever that is, you maybe call like that core um, energy that I'm coming from in my life. Uh, because I've been living in it, I begin to recognize that in others. 
I see that in you. And I think there's no way we could get in a room with Sammy Tucker and have a conversation and not have it be beautiful. So that, that's why you're here. Wow. All right. I don't even know what to say to that. It brought (laughs) tears to my eyes. Yeah. To be at a point in my life where somebody could see that in me because I allow that to be is like, I don't even have words for that because that's not who I used to be. Mm. I spent 41 years of my life being the exact opposite of that. Mm. You know, like I loved that soul family, you know, where you connect with people. Because one of the things about Carlos is he just, he has this love for people and the way that he, in this genuine caring, you know, and, and that is so rare in this world. And when you find that, it's like this this jewel, you know, that you just want to you just want to be around, and you want to you want to nurture and and just be a part of the whole experience. So when he he told me about the show, and then I listened, and it was when Mike Begala was on. All right. Oh my God! And I was just like, oh, it's a great show. Yeah, I would, yeah. It, yeah. And and Mike's another, you know, soul brother, just amazing person, just that exudes a life that is lived to help people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. And yeah. I believe that each one of us has thousands of people throughout the world that have our names on their heart and mind. And it's our obligation to live our truest self and to share our story and to be really good at sharing our story so that when the time comes that we are in that person's presence, we can be vulnerable and we can be strong for them. And we can we can connect because we have a message that only they will hear from you. Mm-hmm. You could say this, the very same thing, and only Carlos would reach that person because mm-hmm. his name is on their heart. Right. You right, know. Right. So oh, we yeah, have totally. that obligation. Mm-hmm. You know. And so for you guys to do this show, and for you guys to put yourself out there, and to be vulnerable, and just go with the flow, and just and and see what kind of messaging can come out. Because I was, we were talking earlier, there are, are thousands of people for generations that are going to be affected because you guys were willing to put yourself out and you know share that message of hope and love and empowerment because 99.99% of the messages out there are not building people up. Yeah, that's for They're sure. Tearing them down. Yeah, yeah. We got to be point one percenters. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I love that. So it's a, it's an amazing honor to be here and be with you guys tonight. I mean, oh, I just can't thank tell you. you. It's Gosh. just amazing. Welcome to the show. Thank so you. happy to have you. Yeah. Thank you. Sammy, tell us your story. Can you give us the uh, uh, the version that we need to know? Oh, the version we need to know. Um, when Carlos, when you talked about uh, being vulnerable, so I grew up in a in a in a loving, and I and I honor and respect my elders and my family because everybody does the best that they can at the time that they you know have with the knowledge that they have. Um, but I, I grew up in a in a pretty harsh. You know, environment. It was you know, if you want to eat, you work. And I was the first grandchild, so I was born on July twenty first, nineteen sixty nine. And I don't know why I'm throwing this out there. I suppose maybe because you guys would appreciate it. So it was the day that they walked on the moon. 
Nice. Oh, wow. And my dad was so stoned. And he wanted to name me Moonwalker. Okay. You know, and mom was, unfortunately, not stoned, and, and I was not named Moonwalker. Um, but What's your secret name? Yeah, yeah, Walker. Mooney. I was like, Mom, come on, really? Moonwalker? Would there be a cooler name? Um, so, Last but, name Zappa. I know, right? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yes. There, there, there are times when sobriety pays off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it was the 60s. <laughs> um, so... And I was the first grandchild. So dad's, you know, having this argument with mom to name me Moonwalker. And grandpa comes in and he looks at me and he says, well, God poked you in when he should have poked you out. But your name is Sam. And he raised me as a grandson, you know. Mm. So I, I I knew hard work, you know. And uh, we talked about earlier, I, I grew up where they filmed Dances with Wolves. So I, you know, got up in the morning and milked the cows and kicked the calves and, and you know, saddled my horse and rode to school. One room school on the prairie. And we had one TV station, and then the call signs were KDUH. So when your portal to the outside world oh, is K-Duh. K-Duh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, who did that? I heard that immediately when you said that. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> so, you know, I, um, and, and I had kind of a typical, um, a, a, outside of the, you know, geographical uniqueness of that, I had a typical upbringing where there was a lot of uh, emotional, physical, sexual abuse, abandonment, divorce, all of those mm. things. So I grew up believing that at, to the core of my being that I was broken and I wasn't enough. Mm. So I graduated high school immediately, you know, left home, went to the big city of Tucson and became a math addict because I really just wanted the pain to die, you know, the pain to end. So, and then, you know, I, thank God I got pregnant and I found something to live for. Mm. Um, and it uh, wasn't a necessarily an easy ride. Ended up in a psych ward, you know, and uh, left the psych ward and joined the Air Force because that's what one does. Right. So um, Logical. Right, you know, but I, I knew I needed structure and yeah. something, you know, to support my daughter with and things like that. So I had um, a typical, you know, divorced and then got remarried, kind of the pendulum swing um, abusive drug addict and married a passive quiet man and you had another kid and everything looked beautiful on the outside you know I had, a, I had an amazing great air force career for four years stayed home with the kids for eight um 9-11 hit and we both wanted to re-enlist but had two young kids so he joined the army and i went to work for the army and again everything on the surface was great but honestly inside every day i was just wishing for the pain to end because I didn't have the skill set to deal with all of the you're not enough messaging, you know? And that's the problem with having wounds inside, is that you can hide them with a smile. Hmm. Right. And affect. People, you can put an affect yes. that presents something else to the world. Yeah. yeah. You know, people didn't see what was going on inside of me, you know? And so I spent 18 years on antidepressants so that I didn't kill myself or somebody else, mm. you know, and, and had a... a Stellar, yeah, I know, right? Yes, you're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> I had a, a stellar um, career with the Department of Defense, and you know, but second divorce, and then got remarried, and and got selected for um, an, an elite unit that the Department of Defense was putting together, and was getting ready to deploy to Afghanistan, and I had sought that position out specifically because I had lived with so much inner turmoil my whole life that. The thought of going to Afghanistan, a war zone, was comforting. 
you know, serving mm. something much bigger. And I had worked for and, and helped train soldiers, you know, in media relations. I was in public affairs most of my whole life, which was terrifying because I grew up being told that I, I should be seen and not heard. And then I end up in this communications field my whole life. Hmm. And, I, you know, I would, I would tell people, I, was like, I don't know why the hell I'm in this. I hate this. But everywhere I go, I end up in broadcasting or public affairs or something. It just kept chasing me, <laughs> yeah. you know. Maybe the universe was trying to show you that you I were wrong. No, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm yourself. like, God, you have this a is, voice. Yeah. And it was all training for, you know, the eventual outcome. But I didn't understand that at the time. I was just terrified. And, and I would do all of these internal tricks to try to psych myself up to go give briefings and things like that. And it was sheer torture and I'd break out in hives and all, you know, it was just awful. Um, so I ended up getting selected for this, this unit uh, to go to Afghanistan. So I'm training and um, going through my third divorce. And, you know, one morning I, I, it's time to get up and, and go to work. And I have been fighting with my husband all night long. He lives in a different state and, you know, I know the end is near, and I decide to get on my motorcycle and ride to work. Because I lived in Kentucky, and it was fall, and the beautiful fall mm. leaves, and mm. it's... I don't know if you guys ride motorcycles, but... I'm an occupational therapist, so I, <sighs> I work know. with so people that have people accidents on motorcycles, and so yeah. I won't get on one. But I have seen Kentucky, and it is <sighs> beautiful. Yeah, yeah, and it's gorgeous. And, and there was this beautiful mountain pass between my, my house and Fort Knox, and... So I gear up and, and morning fog, and there was, this, there was this one corner, and I would come over the hill and around the corner, and there was this valley, and there was this old barn. And certain mornings, it would be like half covered in fog and, the, you know, the aged wood, and it was, God, it was just gorgeous. And uh, so it was one of those mornings, and, and I pull up, I make it to work, you know, and I'm just, I'm calm, and I'm relaxed, because that's what riding the motorcycle always did. And I'm sitting my helmet on the, you know, handlebars, and I look up at, at my office, and I just get that gut wrenching feeling because I, you know, I'd been getting this feeling that I just needed to leave the job. I wasn't supposed to be there, but I was also going to bank two hundred fifty thousand dollars for a year in Afghanistan, and that was quite an incentive, yeah. you know. And my whole thing was, if I had that money, I could come back and never need anybody else again. Because I didn't love myself, I didn't love people, I hated myself, I hated people. I didn't trust myself, I didn't trust people. So, I didn't, you know, this was going to be my ticket out of humanity, basically. You know, and how many times have, do, how many people do we know that feel that way, that we don't even, you know, that put it, cover it with a smile? Yeah. I think that the way I was feeling was not the minority. You know, and I yeah, only know right, that right. now. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, and so it's, you know, big reason why I do what I do, but I was in the vast majority, you know, and so I spent the day fighting with my husband and fighting that feeling that I, did, I shouldn't be there, that I should be doing something else. And I had been feeling this for a long time, several, several months. And um, I left work and, you know, crying, fighting back tears, and I, and I get on my motorcycle, and I have my helmet there, and I had volunteered to go to this event called Shine. Have you guys heard of Shine? Mm, I don't think so. I think it's national now, and it, it's... I think I've heard of it, but I don't recall what this is. Yeah, Shine. so it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a my church organization um, put on this huge prom 
for kids that had cognitive and physical right. disabilities. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This That's thing right. is big. Yeah. I mean, it's you bring in photographers and they've got tuxedos and ball gowns and hairdressers and makeup yeah. and it, I mean, it's huge. And mm-hmm. they do this because these kids are never going to get a prom. They're never going to have that experience. And um, I had finally kind of broke out of my shell and went and I had volunteered to come do makeup for this thing. And I'm sitting on my bike and I'm like, I don't freaking want to go serve these kids. I just don't want to. You know, and then that little voice, well, you don't, you don't need to go because they're not going to miss you any. The, you won't, they won't even know that you don't show up. Who, who do you think you are to think that you would even be an important part of anything like this, you know? And so I'm having that conversation mm. with my, myself, you know? And, and then the other side of me is like, no, I gave my word. I need to do this, you know? And the other part of me is just like, screw this, you know? So I'm having that. And we go through, I think most people go through their day with this internal dialogue of wanting to be who they were created to be, because I think we all have that voice inside of us. And then those pre-programmed, you know, voices of you're not enough and who the hell do you think you are come in. I think most people live that on a continuum every day, you know? And, and so I'm having this, this fight with myself, and then I hear this voice off, off to the back, off to the right, and the voice says, hey, Sam, we're going to go to the bar and sing karaoke. You want to come? Well, I don't want to go home alone, you know, and and so I didn't choose the kids, Mm. and I didn't make it to the bar. So I was going down a road I wasn't familiar with, still trying not to cry, still having that argument with my head, you know, and I didn't see the debris in the road. And, you know, as we're, we're, we're created for greatness, and I think we're all created for a life of purpose and meaning and joy. And I think that, that that spark is in us every day, and it's trying to, trying to live out its purpose every day. And all of the pre-programming messaging that we get from our culture, our music, our news. I mean, my God, if you think about the messaging we get every day, none of it is supporting that. We're not enough. And we don't see the opportunities, and we don't see the tragedies in front of us. You know, and I didn't see the debris in time. And the last thing I said was, oh, shit. You know, and then I had a, a second of blacking out. And then it was, I love a good action flick, hmm. right? And it was just like the movies. And all of a sudden, I, all of it, it's just the most beautiful colors I've seen. This beautiful blue teal and this bright orange and the golds. And, and the, why are they drifting across my vision from left to right? I'm like, what? what is this? You know, so I follow one from one from left to right. And I look and I was like, what, why are my feet bouncing on the highway? And I'm like, oh shit, I'm being drugged down the highway. And I look back and, and behind the sparks, I can see my wheel. And I realized that I'm underneath my motorcycle getting drugged down the highway. And at that point, and everything is in slow motion and I, there's no sound. There's no sensation. There's nothing. And I just keep thinking, this can't be happening. This cannot be happening. You know, and then all of a sudden there was this jolt and this blast of, of, of explosion of sound and I'm burning and the engine is screaming and I'm, I'm back in reality and, you know, everything is in full motion. And so I, I, I'm screaming and I have to push out from underneath the motorcycle because the throttle got stuck and I'm burning. And um, 
So I get out from underneath the motorcycle, and I'm just in panic mode at that point. And I'm running and screaming down the highway, just, oh, God, oh, Jesus. You know, oh, God, oh, Jesus. And I look down, and, oh, God, oh, Jesus, there's not much left of my arm. You know, and um, the lady that was in front of me was one of the coworkers, and she stopped, and she grabbed me, and she, she laid me down in the ditch. And she was an Iraqi vet, veteran, and she'd been blown up in Afghanistan or Iraq. Um, and so I was not a pretty sight at that moment. And she was having kind of a PTSD issue. So I remember she laid me down. Now, guys, here's my mindset. I have just painted this picture for you, right? She lays me down in the ditch, and the first words out of my mouth were, if this screws up my deployment, I'm going to be so pissed. <laughs> Mm. how jacked up is that that is how so disassociated from the core purpose of my life i was at that moment that my arm had just gotten ground off in front of my face and i was pissed if i didn't get to go to my deployment because it was my ticket away from humanity Mm. how many people are walking around like that right now far too many yeah Far too many. I mean, look at our nation, what's going on right now. Far too many mm. are just walking in this, I just want to die, anger mode, taking it out on everybody else. You know, and, and she just looks at me and she says, honey, you're not going anywhere. You know, so I'm laying there and she's asking me questions, knife, and I was like, tell her where my knife is. And, I, and she disappears and I assume she's going to go get a tourniquet or cut a shirt or something. I don't know. And I'm laying there, and I just remember looking at the clouds kind of drifting by and, you know, white cotton ball clouds and leaves blowing in the breeze. And I'm thinking, oh, oh, well, it's this, it's going to happen, you know, because I'm getting thirsty and I'm getting tired and, and I know what's happening and my artery's mm-hmm. gone, you know. Yeah. And I was like, wow, 41 years of life. F- 41 years of life, and this is what I've done. This is what I've left behind. Two kids that won't talk to me. Three divorces. Chaos. Ruined relationships. 41 years of being miserable. Just wanting to die. And here it is. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't have that scene of this is the highlight and this is the low light and all of these moments. And, you know, I just had one emotion. And it was just an overwhelming sense of regret. And, and I'm just deep in that. And then it was like, if you guys remember the Clarion D commercial? The ladies right. in the park and and everything's kind of got a filmy, grainy oh, look yeah. to it. Yeah, yeah. 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 And, and it was a moment like that. And it was, you know, where the, where the, the, the lens comes clear and everything's yeah. bright and mm-hmm. all of that. It was, it was like that where all of a sudden the, the sound changed and, and the my sight changed and it was like every atom around me changed. It was just, I had never seen or experienced or felt anything like it before. And I hear a voice and I hear three words that changed everything for me. And the three words were, you are mine. Hmm. And see, religion was just another area where I was an abysmal failure. I grew up Pentecostal Baptist, Lutheran church of God, all of that, you know, and it didn't matter where we went, there was just another layer of rules that I couldn't live up to. And so I had decided at a very young age that God was just a jackass, you know, and when he said, you are mine, 
I had clarity and, and, and finally understood what my identity was. And I realized that if I had my relationship with God wrong, and that's the most core fundamental thing, what else did I have wrong? So I'm laying there in a ditch, and I got pretty dang excited. I was like, hey, all right, wow. Because I don't think you can change your life without changing your identity. And my identity just got changed. Mm. Yeah, that's a powerful point. Yeah. So from that moment, you know, he, he, so God talks to you like you talk. So he's like, so, hey, while you're, you know, paying attention, we're going to have a conversation. And by that, I mean, I'm going to talk and you're just going to lay there and listen. And I'm like, okay, all right. You know, <laughs> so he went on to, to tell me some things. But the woman that was drug into that ditch was not the woman that was carried out. And from that moment, even, you know, as I'm asking everybody that comes into my field of view to just knock me out, because the pain was starting to happen, oh, yeah. you know, you know. And, uh, but uh, my, my message to everybody and to myself was, I don't know what this means, but it's going to be freaking awesome. Because my identity had changed. Yeah. And from that moment on, I started, what I did was I held up every belief that I had about myself against my new identity. And none of them had legs to stand. That belief that I wasn't enough, well, why did I believe that? Who said that? Where's the evidence? And the people that are offering the evidence, are they the people I want to model my life after? So all of my beliefs crumbled. I mean, for a, for a visual, when, when I heard those words, you are mine, that, that fortress of protection that I had built around myself, that was built of, of bricks of shame and guilt and anger and frustration and not enough, that I had built around myself and kept people out my whole life, when those words, when I heard them, it, the, the whole fortress came crumbling down. And that little girl that I was inside that was hiding in the corner stood up, stepped over that debris into a new world. And so I am the beloved of God, and I live my life that way now. And I believe that everybody in this world is the beloved of God, and that everybody has been created for a life of meaning and joy and purpose. And it is my job to be vulnerable and to share my ugly, because if I share my ugly, then it's going to give you permission to share yours too. And shame cannot handle being exposed, because it has no power. So that's why I'm here. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I have a question for you about what you just said Okay. Um, before the shame thing. Okay. You said your identity changed. Yeah. So there you were, you're in that ditch, and you heard those three words, and everything shifted for you, and the pain yeah. was coming on. Yeah. So my question is, how did that change your perception of your mission, your purpose? I, can't, I had purpose for the first time. You know, I, I didn't feel like I had purpose before. And that's why I was, you know, I tried to commit suicide when I was younger, and, and that's why I just lived every day wishing the pain would end. I didn't feel like I had a purpose. I felt like I was a waste. I felt like my life had no meaning mm. at all. So finally I felt like I had a purpose because if God loved me, then I could finally love myself. And that was what was missing most of my life was that I didn't love myself. And, I, and you can't love others if you don't love yourself. You know, that, that self-acceptance. Mm. You know? And I finally saw all the beauty in the pain and, and the trauma of my life. You know, and, and I'm so thankful now that I've, I've gone through physical, emotional, sexual abuse and been a drug addict and all of those things because I'm relatable to people, you know. And, and this, this 
arm, this stump, this whatever it is, you know, that I, that I have, people go, oh, my God, how did you overcome that? And it's, you know, like, this is the best gift I've ever given myself. Because I realized that I did this to myself. My choices put myself in that ditch. And if I can manifest something so awful, then imagine the great shit I can manifest. So I get the gift of every day not being able to forget that because I live with this. You know, sometimes I've had miracles in my, in my life before, but you can forget those because life is right in your face. Well, this is right in my face. This arm is like constant reminder of the power of your thoughts and the power of what you allow in your life. questions for you now okay i'm gonna shut up story. <laughs> no i love it i love it what, a, what an intense story wow um one thing i noticed when you were telling that story is you used a lot of language and a lot of descriptions that um indicated that you were totally present at that moment like you were really in the present moment you know um you don't tell that story like it happened in the past you know, I mean, I almost feel it right now in front of me, like 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 this is a movie unfolding, and yeah, I'm, we I'm watching in. the movie, and I'm in it. You know, and and I wonder um, if that experience of of being so present, um, how much of that had to do with some of your transformation? Yeah, I'm really thankful that I never lost consciousness, and that it is so clear because I can go back to that moment at any time. Um. And, it, and it's a, and it's an amazing gift. And and I think that the reason that one of uh, one of the other reasons that I was able to transform it was because for the first time I could see myself as not being myself. I was I was outside of my my preconceived, um, pre-validated identity, and I could see myself disassociated and go, oh, that's who you think you are. But I was able to separate myself, get outside of, you know, it's like the fish doesn't know it's in water type thing. So I could finally s- separate and look at myself objectively. And so, yeah, it's an amazing gift hmm. that, uh, you know, I don't have PTSD. You know, I can go back to that moment um, because it was such an, it was where I, I feel like I was reborn. Yeah. You know, the, the, the me that I was meant to be hmm. was freed. Yeah. You know, it's where I broke through of my prison. Yeah. yeah, you know. Speaking of being reborn, um, do you think that old identity did die in that ditch? Um, the power of it died. the The memory, the impact, the experience, the knowledge, the wisdom didn't die, but the power died. Um, I was very much addicted to being that victim. Um, you know, and, and your thoughts produce a chemical release into your body, and your body, just like the meth gets addicted to that your receptors adjust you know and and days when i'd be like i am not going to be negative and i'm not gonna you know i'm just gonna try to love myself today and that will happen for a couple hours and then the body's like no we really want to gossip and we want to we want we want to you know talk bad about ourselves and we want to we want to hate our mother and we want to you know renumerate we just want to just like live in those memories of loss and depression and being not enough because that feels normal now it's 
death to the body, but it feels normal, mm. you know, and it's a chemical addiction to thought, you know, and I, I would have fights in my head constantly with people that never existed in the real world, but I was constantly living in the past. I was never present ever, you know, and, and that's why I had failed relationships. That's why I, I still to this day, my kids don't know me, um, because I was never present in their life. I was always in the past. You said something, too, a moment ago um, that made me think of this concept of self-gossip. Can you gossip about yourself? Oh, my God. Is that what you were doing? Yes. Gossiping about yourself. What if we Absolutely. were to gossip about ourselves? Would we learn something about who we are? <laughs> you know? Like if I was going to gossip about myself, what would, I, what would I gossip about? I would probably gossip about inadequacies. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Even yeah. though the logical part of my brain understands that I have all kinds of amazing traits, you know, hanging out with good friends like Oliver over here and Carlos, they validate that I'm a good person. Right. But when I'm gossiping about myself, it's always shortcomings. It's always failings and and not enoughs and things like that. You know, and gossiping Mm -hmm. is taking a a negative perception based on somebody else's reality, somebody else's experience and projecting it on others, usually to make themselves feel better. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Carlos. Did you ever gossip about yourself? I can do it right now. Yeah? I mean, who the hell does that guy think he is? <laughs> Authenticity, that's so presumptuous. Who the hell is that guy who thinks he's just going to be the authority on what's authentic and what isn't? Right. You know, um, I mean, you could just go on. I mean, it's the same thing in inadequacies, but really were to um, just step into what that feels like. It's just, you know, how many times have I doubted myself? How many times have I thought, I wasn't enough or I didn't have enough training or enough knowledge or I hadn't mastered X, Y, or Z enough to be able to help others or to teach or to charge for my services or any of those inadequacies. And I could just turn that around into a gossip. You know, mm-hmm. here he is, you know, trying to have his business, you know, helping other people right. to, to uh, you know, transform their conflicts. That guy's got so many damn conflicts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a hypocrite. I mean, gosh, I could just spend the next hour doing right, that. Right, yeah. right, right. And you know what's funny? Like, as your friend, I hear you say these things, and I want to jump out and stop you. You know? <laughs> no, no, no. listening to The Authenticity Show, where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Next up, Carlos and Satch continue their conversation with Sammy Tucker about training to be your best self in any situation, whether it be a car accident, military combat, theater performance, or a medical emergency. So Sammy, while you were talking about this identity shift mm-hmm. that, that occurred in your life, um, I remember one time having a, uh, 
a similar perspective to that, that that happened to me. And it was not associated with any sort of trauma. It was just, I was in a, a, a really particularly receptive and meditative state. And uh, somehow I was able to watch my mind watch itself. Yes. And I remember saying to myself, oh, look at him and all of his little plans and his little you know, little, little wants and needs. And, you know, and, and I had this, this idea come up in me that just said, you know, just let him die. And, and I understood very clearly that that, that wasn't, you know, let me, my body die. It was, it was let that, that, um, that aspect of personality just go ahead and dissolve is really what it meant, you know? And, uh, it was a very liberating moment. It was very, very freeing to have that. So, um, uh, you know, like I said, it, it wasn't you know trauma based or anything like that, but um, uh, but it was a glimpse. Did you let him? You know? Did you let him die? Yeah, I think oh, I did as much beautiful. as I could in the moment. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, I, I think I did the best I could to allow that to to happen. I was curious about it, so I followed it with curiosity, and um, it felt very good. That's how I knew it was okay because it felt really really nice. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. That is, um, so the scene that I described when, you know, the sparks were going by and everything was in slow motion, it was a, it was a really weird sensation because I was associated and disassociated at the same time, which kind of sounds like what you were discuss- you were describing. It wasn't like I was a third person looking at somebody else. I was, I was truly associated and disassociated. It was me. I was yeah. looking through my own eyes, but outside of my own body. And it was just a really weird um, experience that I haven't ever had since. I knew exactly yeah. what you were experiencing in that moment. At least I assumed that I was having that experience because I've been in car accidents that were pretty serious. Yeah. And so as soon as you did that, I went. I dropped right into trance as you were exp- expressing that, and I was experiencing what you were experiencing. Yeah. Um, because I remember that feeling of where where the the thing that was taking place on a physical level mm-hmm. was actually faster than my thoughts. Oh yeah. And so there's this disconnect between you know there's a time distortion. And yeah, I remember the the cabin of the car that I was in just crushing slowly around me and feeling oh. the air pressure change and spinning around in the car and and um, the pain, um, you know, issuing into my body but not knowing where the pain was coming from, just kind of a vague sense of uh, an awareness of pain. Um, sounds and thoughts and feelings kind of all happening. Yeah, so I, I knew what you meant when you said that and, and all of a sudden the scene was at an angle in your vision that didn't seem right because it all happened so fast that yeah. you didn't track how it got there. Yeah. And then suddenly you're tracking where you are at that moment. It's not where you were. And it's it's all getting very disorienting. But yeah. there's a piece in it as well because there's a part of you that's disconnected yeah. emotionally from it. Yeah. yeah it's, it's, a, it's a weird combination, isn't it? Yeah. Do you find yourself going back to that moment at times... Where you need to feel grounded? Yes. In fact, now that you say it, um, I was quite pleased with something that I did during that accident. I had been having visions of somebody running a red light and hitting me for about two, three weeks. And I kept thinking about it over and over again, and I would try to clear that thought out, but then I just kept having that vision. So that's part of the odd thing about this is that some part of me was sensing the possibility that this could happen. Mm-hmm. So there I was, and I, I was maybe two blocks from my house in Costa Mesa, and um, it was a green light. And as I went into the middle of the intersection, this big 
like F-250 truck, gunned it. And of course, I thought, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I wrapped my arms into this kind of rounded position, and I put my mental intention downward into the lower belly button area that we call the dantian in Chinese medicine and uh, kung fu. Um, and it was like I was harnessing my energy, and I went in. I tucked my chin. I wrapped my arm in a circle, and I just focused on all my mind going down. And when I got hit, and this was the brief like split-second thought was, if I don't do this, I'm going to get thrown sideways, and it could kill me or dislocate something seriously in my neck or, you know, serious problem. So I got hit and my own motion, my own intention brought me more grounded and rooted into the seat. Wow! So even though there was this incredible force coming in from the side, as the force was coming in, it's almost like I borrowed the kinetic force of that crushing impact and I drove it down through the seat. Wow. And the, the coordination it was just done so perfectly um, that it pinned me into the seat more. Wow. And so w- at the end of the accident, when I was spun around in a different part and I, my, my truck was completely totaled and, and everything, when I finally got my breath back, there was this other pain shooting through me and I couldn't figure out what it was. And when the ambulance came and they checked me out, um, there was no pain anywhere they were touching. But then suddenly they touched my finger. It was my bird finger, by the way. <laughs> Oh, um, it broke my bird finger. So I had a permanent um, insult on my left hand for for a while while I had the you know the stability. But the thing is, that was the only thing that was broken. That is amazing. You know, and I, I just felt like I'd gotten punched, but basically nothing else was harmed. Just the shock, the trauma of, of impact. But really, it was fine. It was all because I drove my energy down wow. into my dantian. I've been doing a lot of meditation and qigong at that time in my life. So it was like I was, my nervous system was primed and ready right. for this emergency to take place, and it borrowed that energy and did. It was not the only time I've done that, but it was a very significant time. So you said, "Hey, have you ever drawn upon that for grounding?" And the, the answer is yes. I've thought of it many times when I realized, "Hey, we are capable of doing all sorts of things, but you have to believe that you're capable. You can't waste time right. doubting." If I had thought, "Oh, I don't know what I'm going to do," right. instead of said, "You know what?" doesn't matter. At this point, I just got to do something right? and focus on it. That's what I need to do. And then worry about the results later. Right. You just got to do it. There was something that you said, though. You say your nervous system was primed and ready. Mm-hmm. You had put, been putting intention in creating that. Mm-hmm. You know, those neural pathways were created and established and reinforced. Mm-hmm. And shortened. Yes. And so you were able to, you know, activate that and just go there so quickly. Yep. And we were talking about why people gossip about themselves because their nervous systems have been primed and ready for it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's an evolutionary advantage. Yeah. To so be prepared for what could go wrong. You know? Right. But what could go wrong, you prepared in a positive way. You know, and and mm-hmm. talking about I spent most of my time, you know, depression is, is focusing on the things that went crappy in the past and anxiety is thinking about things that could go crappy in the future because you're, you're projecting the past into the future. You know, so my nervous system was primed and ready for the worst and everything. And I used to actually laugh about that. I'd be like, oh, you know, I just prepare for the worst and anything better is a bonus. You know, what a crappy outlook on life, you know. Whereas you had a, a, a crisis situation and your nervous system was primed and ready to preserve. Mm-hmm. And that's the same thing with action and thought. 
you know, and my nervous system was pr- primed and ready to say, you know, oh shit, and we're going to die. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that wasn't the motorcycle. That was just every day, you know, just mm-hmm. everything was negative. And, and I would, you know, self-sabotage anything that could possibly be positive, you know, and any compliment that came my way, I was suspicious of. And, you know, I, I would totally take any positive and make it a negative because that was, was what was comfortable. Mm-hmm. So I had that crisis situation every moment and shows the bad because that's what my nervous system was primed and ready for. So I'm so glad to hear that you go yeah. back to that, you yeah. know, and, and that's, that's, um, that's why we really got to guard our thoughts. Yeah. Got to guard our thoughts, yeah. you know, and, and so, you know, I'll do classes with kids and parents and I'm like, all right, so how do you start your day? You get up in the morning and do you turn on your music? You know, and or do you turn on the TV and you get in your car and you turn on your music? Well, let's think about the messaging. From the moment you're conscious, you're listening to the news or you're listening to talk radio, which is nothing more than just the crap that's on the news, or you're listening to music. So what positive, uplifting messages are you getting? Nothing. And then you go at work and you gossip all day and you fight with bosses and, you know, nothing is positive. And then you come home listening to the same crap on the radio, having the same gossipy conversations, listening to the same crap on the news, and then at night you're like, I don't know why my life sucks so bad. It might be because of the crap you're putting in your head. <laughs> you mean it's not the boss hole's fault? No, it's not the boss hole, because you're the boss hole. I'm sorry to tell you. You're the boss hole. You know, wow. and, I, and I didn't realize that until hmm. you know, my accident. So the first yeah. thing I did was take accountability for me being in that ditch. Yeah. And when you said that you had had this dream about being hit for weeks. Premonition, yeah. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until a couple of years after my accident, but then I realized that I had said multiple times, and I had, had been riding mo- motorcycles when I was young, and I'd had you know Kawasaki's and things like that. And I always told myself, if I ever got a Harley, I would probably really, really hurt myself, like wow. bad. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Interesting yeah. strategy yeah. to create. I know. And, yeah. you know, and it, because I kind of, I'm kind of an adrenaline junkie, I love that. And I thought, you know, Harley's got a lot of power. And, and, and so I could go back and, and lay down the foundation of my reasoning. Wow. And I wasn't doing anything stupid at that moment. You know, I was 45 miles an hour on a normal curve. I was the 12th motorcyclist to wreck on that corner. So it was, an, it was a road where the tanks, uh, tanker units at Fort Knox went out to their training ground. So the asphalt was broken down. So I wasn't doing anything stupid, yeah. but still I had laid that neurological groundwork for yeah. that, yeah. you know, I, and I believe that what you can speak things into existence, yeah, absolutely. You know? thoughts I, become things. I, I, I th- think it's amazing and, and very refreshing to hear that you had that experience and then right away you understood that you played a gigantic role in creating that and manifesting that, you know, and that's really hard for us humans to do. Right. You know, when you're literally dying in a ditch to go, yeah, I put myself here. Yeah. That's hard. That's, that's weird. But that's if I hadn't done that, I would still be living that same life. Yeah. Well, I would, no, I'd be a suicide statistic. Mm. I, I would have offed myself. Well, yeah. what a loss that would have been. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank yeah, you. Yeah. Really? Wow.
going to share a, a minor pet peeve of mine. Absolutely, peeve which away. Which relates to this. Peeve away. Um, people, you probably all have heard this, people who say things like, oh, you can never know what you're going to do in a situation like that. And I'm thinking to myself, you've never heard of preparation? And you're like, oh, you can't prepare for this. You know, you just never can tell. And you know what? And, you know, it's just going to happen. And I think, well, that hasn't been my experience. I mean, and it's not the experience of the military either. I mean, yes, there are exceptions, but that's yeah. the whole reason why you have, you know, manuals because they've thought this stuff out. And right. why is it they're able to do that? Because they've rehearsed, they've practiced, it's ingrained, it's become habit, it's become unconscious. They're able to maintain a level of dissociation. They switch into a mode. They even change their identity mm-hmm. in order to match that. Yeah, It is a hypnotic process, learning how to ha- to handle an emergency and what happens if this happens and what happens if that happens? Mm-hmm. What happens if your CO gets taken out? And then what happens if the lieutenant gets taken out? What mm-hmm. do you do now? You know, when I was um, probably 14 or something like that, uh, I was practicing meditation and preparing myself for um, earthquakes. I was getting the sense that there were going to be some earthquakes. And lo and behold, gee, we live in California. Hello, <laughs> there was a big earthquake. And because I'd practiced this one meditation, when the earthquake hit, I was in a dead sleep. But the first thing I did is I sat up and went right into meditation instantly. And everything was shaking around me, and I completely felt at ease. I felt peaceful. I felt like it didn't matter. The whole house could be caving in around me, but my mind was fixated on what it was that I was doing because I had prepared myself for death. I said, right. when I die, I will do this because I don't want to be in fear right. when I die. I want to be handling this like a boss. I want to handle this like I know what I'm doing, and that's exactly what I did. Yeah, I But it's because that. I prepared myself it happened. Right. And I always felt like um, anyone who really gives that any serious effort will have the same experience. And mm. Absolutely. And, you know, you go back to the to the military thing. So I worked at um, Fort Polk, a Joint Readiness Training Center in Fort Polk for seven years. And I was the media relations officer there when the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan really kicked off. So we are one of the only two capstone training grounds in America for you know the large unit movements, it's the last training event before they go over to Iraq or Afghanistan. Oh. Now we had two hundred and thirty thousand ish acres that we would convert into the area of operation that they were going to deploy into, and we would have about twelve hundred role players come in, and around two hundred thirty, two hundred forty of them spoke the dialect of the people that the unit was going to go into. Now we had you know. Um, we had individuals in theater that were feeding back daily intel on what the techniques, tactics, and procedures of the terrorists were using against our guys in theater. So it was very real-time training. So um, I would bring in you know, the national international media that wanted to cover it. So we had everybody at that point because it was, it was huge world news. And I remember... So, so the, the whole goal of that, and and we had Hollywood set designers come in to create these villages that replicated where they were going to go into, and we had amputees that were that would moulage up. So, one scenario, you know, like Wadi Al Sharif was one uh, village that usually got a lot of action, and and they would have, they would have an operational order. You're going to go from this point to that point to to you know this is your mission. 
Now, they didn't know what they were going to encounter from point A to point Z. So they would, you know, come rolling over the hill into this town, and you would have villagers. And, you know, one of one of the scenarios was there would be an upended cart with a donkey and a bunch of, you know, village people yelling, And but it was right in the road. So the unit would come rolling in, and how would they deal with this situation? So if they came in, stopped, you know, and, and engaged with the locals and took too long, we would have RPGs on a wire. They would come down, explode. Now, the, so we couldn't do the actual explosion. So the only thing we really couldn't replicate was the smell. But you, you, the smoke, the loud, everything, and then everything, everybody's moulashed. So you got people with missing limbs, shooting blood, guts exposed, kids, you know, people screaming, and because they'd stayed in the kill zone too long. So then they have to take care of the civilian casualties, get their people out, and get out of the, the, the city in time. So the scenario is to train the hesitancy out them, out of them. And they wanted, you know, the whole goal is to have their worst day in combat at JRTC instead of in Afghanistan. So again, it's preparing. So yeah, all, all of the blood and the guts and everything that they saw was to get that moment of hesitancy trained out of them. So they're yeah. like, oh, neurologically, they're just like, all right, this is how we do this. It's Kobayashi Maru. Basically, from, yeah, from, ex- exactly, from Star Trek, yeah. Right? Except for there was no mm-hmm. cheating, right? You yeah. know, yeah. So we had <laughs> wow. you know Miles Gear and God Guns and things yeah. like that. Um, and then the, the observer controllers would like, hey, you just totally failed this. We're going to reset, go back, try it again. And they wow. got that chance to have that do over, wow. you know, which I got to do in that accident, and mm. you got to do in your accident. We mm-hmm. got that do over, you know, yeah. and and when you mentally rehearse, you executing success in a trauma or in a in a crisis situation you then greatly magnify the you know the chance that that's how you're going to respond to it yeah but when people are like i don't know how to respond well then you that's exactly what's going to happen you're going to have panic and chaos and disorder Mm -hmm. you know but plan for life's crisis and obstacles and adversity yeah and learn techniques to take those things and turn them into intentional personal gains so that you can live a life, you live more life and stress less. And yeah. Really? Yeah. We all have that capability in us. Yeah. You know, Could you imagine if we took that level of specificity and training to train our lives to be peaceful and authentic and mm-hmm. honest mm-hmm. and, and, you know, to um, uh, respond to road rage mm-hmm. and to respond to um, moments where people scream at us and you know what I mean? And, and really have that kind of training. And it's very funny. I mean, I think that is one of the things that you and I, Carlos have tried to do on the show. Right. Amygdala uh, hijack, yeah. hijack, hijack, hijack. Right. I actually can We're imagine that. that. Absolutely. Yeah. I can yeah, imagine yeah. That. yeah. And, and, um, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're talking about, um, uh, practicing for, for, tough situations like you had said that when you carlos you said that you know hey when i die i want to be peaceful and you know yeah. and, and and you went into that that meditative state you know um i've shared with you recently that one of the things i want to start doing now while i'm young and healthy is i want to start creating the kind of death that i'm going to have oh beautiful and it's going to be conscious and it's going to be peaceful and it's going to be full of insight and wisdom and i i see myself looking at beautiful treetops swaying and me feeling like Oh, this is perfect. 
you know. That's what I saw. It was actually not yeah, bad. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I, think, it's, I yeah. think it's important for people to um, uh, think about these things that are going to happen in your life mm-hmm. and start manifesting the way we want them to to be experienced. You're training the fear out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right, right. Training for peace. Yeah. yeah. Perception Absolutely. is also projection. Yes. Yeah, that's right. It really is. That's right. I find it intriguing that they they refer to the military operation as theater. Yeah. That is exactly what it is. It's mm-hmm. it's 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 an unscripted script. So, you know, we know where you're going to start and we know what the desired outcome is, but everything in between that's free play, and that's what they call it. It's free play, you know. It's it's impromptu, you know. But it, the thing is, is that they're going to throw the worst at you, and, and you get a chance to do it over and over again. One of the most memorable um, training experiences that that I had, we had ABC out there, and they arrived at like ten a.m. and and I and I go in and I had the basic because it's free play. You don't really know where the unit's going to be too much, you know. So we knew that this, you know, Bravo company had this, you know, mission to go to this village, Smith Village. This is Alpha Bravo Company as opposed to alcohol beverage control. Yeah, alcohol. there was no alcohol (laughs) beverage control. So, yeah, it was was Bravo Company. I don't know why I remember Mm -hmm. that, but it was a National Guard unit. And Smith Villa is, like, way out in the middle of nowhere, and it's just, like, really one house and a Quonset. And uh, so I'm out there with, with ABC, and we're losing light, you know. And, and they have to leave the next morning, so and they haven't got their story. But it's all free play. So I'm feeling the pressure of, here I've got this national news outlet and no story at this point. And there's nothing I can do about it. I'm like, listen, all I know is this is where they're supposed to be. Now, it, they could get here at 1 in the morning. I don't know. So the sun's getting ready to go down, and we, we see the Humvees rolling over the hill. So... You know, and we can't interfere with, with anything that goes on. So I pull them around the building. Um, unit comes up, and they just, like, right in the middle of everything, just park and get out, which doesn't make any sense to me, you know. And and so they they kind of head around to this building and, you know, just get slaughtered. I mean, you know, it was Blue Force and Red Force, the terrorists basically just obliterate them all. And so you have, it's a vest and it's a miles gear. And, and so, you know, if you get hit by the laser, um, mm-hmm. it beeps and you, you, you go down. You have to put your weapon down, you sit, you're done. And then the observer controller will come out and you've got your card and it'll pull out and it'll tell you what your casualty is. You know, you're missing a leg, you're dead, whatever it is. And you have to operate, you know, accordingly. And uh, so at, at that point, we got the, the news crew, and they're going around. They got all their B-roll and everything, and they go up to this this ditch, and there's this captain, and he's crying. And so, she, and you know, they've called end of exercise and everything, so we can now start engaging. And uh, she goes up to this captain, and she's like, "Well, you know, what are you feeling right now?" And this poor kid, he's crying. He's like, "I just killed every one of my men." And in two weeks, this shit's going to be real. Wow. And all I have is a broken leg. And how do I tell their parents? You know, and it was just like, whoa. Mm. But I guarantee you, he never made that mistake again. You right. Know? So he got to rehearse that. And, and we can do the same thing. So the power of the mind, you know, we rehearse the, the, the worst case scenario most times. 
because look at what our our TV programs and our news do. It's always worst case scenario. So retraining ourselves to look at okay, here's this thing that could happen and in any situation. We're going to go into this meeting. We have this this proposal. We have this engagement with this person. We have this conflict with this person. Why don't we rehearse a good ending with all the worst questions being asked? With all the worst of the confrontation being thrown at us, and how because we can we can replay that, we can rewind that, we can we can reframe our responses, we can do all of that and with the theater of our mind mm-hmm. and then already have we won't have that God, I wish I would have said this instead because you will have rehearsed it so many times that the conflict is already deflated before it even really happens. You know, our mm. mind is so powerful. It is mm-hmm. yeah. so powerful. You know, um, speaking of theater, mm-hmm. right? I've I've uh, dabbled a little bit in theater in my life, um, not a whole lot, but certainly some. And uh, I had an experience when I was in high school. I was a senior in high school, and we did a production of A Streetcar Named Desire. Ah, and uh, um, that was my first full length play, and we, we we did that, and I learned a lot from it. And then later in the year, um, I got a pretty big role in, in another play. And what I, what I learned from being in the streetcar play was that you have to rehearse while considering the audience, right? So I would practice think being aware of the audience, imagining there's an audience out there, mm-hmm. right? I would never let myself practice as though there were not an audience out there. Right. right, the audience is there, even if they're not there. Right, right? yeah. And and I'm I'm preparing for that. I'm preparing for that. And so then there's this one scene. It was a very important scene, and I had a very unique experience that happened. It was me and uh, and an actress, and it was a very intimate scene, and it was you know a lot of emotion in the scene, and just leading up to this moment, I could feel the audience getting a little bit restless, and I was totally in the present moment running through the lines and I was saying all my lines and responding to all my cues. And so was she, but I was simultaneously aware of the audience and I could suddenly feel every single person in the audience. I could almost feel their heart center, every person in there. And I could feel that they needed me to draw them back into the scene so that they could enjoy the play. Mm -hmm. So I took it upon myself to do that. And as I was delivering my lines, I was almost speaking to their heart center. And I could feel the intensity in the room come back. And we finished the scene, and I always remembered that. I always, always remember that. And any other times I've been up in front of people, whether I'm teaching a class or I'm giving a presentation or in another play, Mm -hmm. um, I always leave that space to allow myself to become aware of the audience. And so I can pay attention to what they need. So I can give it to them. Yeah. And what's funny about that that concept or this this technique, I guess, for lack of a better word, is that one, it does come from the present moment. Mm-hmm. I have to be present in order for that to happen. Mm-hmm. Two, um, it requires preparation. Yeah. It requires rehearsal. It requires intent. It requires um, knowing what kind of outcome I want, even though I don't know the exact outcome. I'm preparing for a positive outcome. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's another opportunity to demonstrate that we can do this very thing that we're talking about, where you 
plan, you train your nervous system to tune into what you need and what others need at that moment so that you mm-hmm. can deliver it when you have to because you don't know when exactly it's going to come. Yeah. So. You know what stands out to me in your story is that um, the thing that you did different in preparation is what most people don't do. Most people will practice something in a different physiological state and a different mm-hmm. mind state than how they deliver that. Now, what you said was every time I rehearsed, I rehearsed with the audience present. So m- most, you know, I, I did some stage stuff. I did, definitely didn't do that. I was very much, you know, concerned with my lines which your energy is so different than when you're getting ready to go on stage for a live performance because your 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 heart rate is up your your blood pressure's up your temperature's up your eyes are dilated your your whole energy is different so but what I noticed you said was you you rehearsed in the same state that you delivered it correct which yeah. is why you were able yeah. to be attuned to that even deeper level of their heart center yeah and yeah, yeah. Yeah, so like yeah. we were talking, yeah. let's rehearse the things that we are that we know we're going to experience in that same state. Right. Yeah. I mean that that's um expanded awareness mm-hmm. training that we do in in NLP, you know, sometimes in in Huna tradition they call hakalau, right? Yeah. Your energy is expanded, your perceptions are focused on everything outside of you, yeah. not inside of you. And you you it's uptime, right? So your energy's raised up and it's outward focused. So there's really not a lot of room for nervousness and other things because your focus is everybody else, not you. Mm-hmm. So I try to tell people who have um, nervousness issues when it comes to public speaking is make it about them, not about you. You know, bring your energy up and out. And like what you were doing, you're feeling everybody's heart center and you're interacting with that. You even sensed a moment where um, you had to caretake. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this is... Um, Something's off. I need to make an adjustment here, and it's not me. It's 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 the audience. The audience needs something, and you met that need because yeah, you were yeah. upward and outward focused. Yeah, it's easier now, now that you describe that and relate it to my own story. I better understand. I've heard, I've heard you talk about this before uh-huh. about you know making it about others and expanding your expanded awareness and all that. Uh-huh. Um, I think now I might be able to use that in other settings. Totally, yeah. because I naturally did it as an actor, uh-huh. right? But. I don't naturally do that in other arenas in my life yeah. that I could benefit from that from. But yeah. now that I've, I'm thinking of my story while you're using those words, I go, now I really understand what Carlos is talking about. So I think now it's maybe I, for, can, I can apply that elsewhere in yeah. a better way I couldn't have before. Yeah. Totally. So, cool. Great for Thanks, teaching. Yeah. yeah. And you, you yeah. talk about how you're a teacher. It's great for teaching. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, when I used to teach martial arts, um, that was easy because it, it, I don't know, it's different. Is, is warrior training? You know, you yeah. you know, it's very different. Or, or you're holding a, a weapon and you're squaring off with another person and you're sparring with that weapon. The energy is up and out. Um, and the same when I would teach a class and you know I'm 15 or 16, 17 teaching a group of adults. That energy had to be a certain way, and I felt like I just would lose myself to that. But then suddenly, uh, giving my first talk, public speaking talk. Oh, nervousness. Oh my gosh. And is this going to be good enough? And it's all about me. So then. Nervousness, mm-hmm. but then I discovered that same thing that you just did, where you said, "Oh, now I can relate that to something." So I started to relate getting in front of an audience to the same idea of teaching a martial art class. I feel different when I'm teaching a martial art class, so why can't I just feel that now? Yeah. I'm just still teaching something. It's still just a room full of people that want to hear something, yeah. you know, that they want to learn, and you're teaching it. You're dispensing it. So just make it the same. 
And so it was the same thing for me. Like I made a connection. I was like, oh, that's the same. Yeah, definitely. You know, um, also, uh, we've we've discussed training for um, like emergency situations, you know, mm. uh, emotionally charged situations, right? Mm. Um, when I was young, and Carlos, you know this, I, I used to do uh, bike tricks. Yeah. Right? Remember those days? You were amazing, yeah. bro. That, that, that was fun. Yeah. Those were fun. Couldn't do those now. Fun to watch. Not without pulling my groin, you know? <laughs> um, but I remember when I used to do the bike tricks, I would have a, a, a stillness in my mind where I was totally present. I wasn't thinking of the past or the future. I'm just feeling my bike and gravity and momentum and just staying completely neutral in my mind while I'm doing the trick. I've noticed that same state if I'm working as a healthcare provider and there's some kind of medical crisis or medical emergency. In that moment, there's, there's really not much emotion. There's not much thought. And I feel like I'm, I'm in the middle of a bike trick. But I'm dealing wow. with a person now. Wow. You know? I can remember a time when there was a, a client who was choking and people were doing CPR and, and I could see how everybody was panicking and not doing the right thing, you know, but for some reason in that moment, I was, it was just, it's just like a bike trick. Just be present, give everybody what they need, you know, tell this person, sit, make a suggestion that will help everybody here. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. or somebody has a seizure and they're standing and they need to get brought to the floor and nobody knows what to do. You know, it's just a bike trick, Right. you know, just. It's very interesting how, how some of the things in our past prepare us for the future that we're supposed to be doing. You're listening to The Authenticity Show where you get to eavesdrop on great conversations about health, creativity, and the quest for excellence. Your hosts are Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Next up, Sammy talks about leading resilience training workshops with the U.S. Air Force and her personal training and experience with the Paralympics. So Sammy, I heard something really awesome by paying attention to your Facebook feeds and just staying connected in the groups. Seeing you um, connect with the U.S. Air Force in a really interesting way. And I'd like to hear about that. I think that would be interesting for all of us to hear. And I would like to hear more details about it. So you, you connected with the U.S. Air Force and you were presenting for them and teaching for them. Can you tell us what happened? What was that about? Yeah. Fill us in. Yeah, it, it was, it was, let's see, how did that, you know, one thing leads to another. Um, I spoke at a chamber of commerce and a gentleman was there that was a, a regional Lions Club person. And he's like, hey, would you come speak at our, you know, regional Lions Club meeting? I'm like, yeah, sure, why not? You know, so it happened to be at um, Mountain Home Air Force Base. And I, I, I have a general thing that I, I like to talk about, but I just like to feel the audience. So I, I will go into a situation often not knowing what I'm going to say. And I like to get there a couple hours and just early and interact with people and, and again, feel the audience and, and you know, what is it that they're interested in? What do they care about? Why are they there? That type of thing. And while I was there, it hit me that I hadn't been on an Air Force base since 1994 when I got out of the Air Force. 
And I was like, wow, this is just really cool. So I get up to speak and I talk about, you know, that and my Air Force connection. And then I just go into my story with the meth, you know, crystal meth and, and all of that. And um, the mindset that put me into that ditch and, you know, how I changed my, my thoughts and how it changed the outcome of my life and how I get to direct what I want to do by putting my intention on the future that I want, you know. And um, at the end, uh, this colonel comes up to me, and he's, and he's the base commander. I had no idea he was going to be there. And he said, hey, so you're prior Air Force, and I loved what you said, and we have a, a resiliency program that we started um, Air Force-wide in about 2012, and I would just love for you to just come talk to you know the airmen. I was like, oh, my God, that would be so awesome. I said, well, why don't I do a class? You know, because a story is one thing, but I know, um, because military, they're working for the military, being in the military, married to the military has been most of my adult life. I understand what it's like to be active duty. I understand what it's like to be spouse, and I understand what it's like to be a civilian working for the, for the military. So I've got all spectrums. Um, why don't I come and just do a couple-hour class on some of the basic things that I've learned about mindset? And he's like, yeah, that would be awesome. So I came and did a, a two-hour class, and the feedback was amazing. And they had their resiliency um, instructors take my class. So it was their feedback, really, that, that mattered. And their feedback was, wow, it's really relevant. It goes deeper than what our program does. Bring her back. So then, you know, he's like, so, so can you do more? And I was like, sure, I'll, I'll do a couple six-hour classes. And it's, it's really turned into a really neat um, way to use, again, what, I'm so thankful for all the crap that I went through in my life and the fact that I have all of that experience and, and knowing because how beat down you get, our service members go through things you guys can't even fathom. And the stress that's put on them as individuals and as family members is just phenomenal. And to be able to teach them just some basic mindset things, these are the reasons that you're responding to this stimulus the way you are. These are some of the things that you can do to preempt that. You know, these are some of the things that you can do to change the way you're going to look at some of that trauma. These are the reasons that you believe the things that you do. Um, and, and it's just been, the feedback has been amazing. Because again, we only know what we're taught. And a lot of these kids come right, just like I did, right out of, you know, young adulthood, you know, preteen, teen, right out of high school, this is what I want to do. And you go into this this environment where it's all sacrifice. And the mission is so intense that there's really not time to develop the internal skill set to run that marathon the long t- the long term. Military service, military life is a marathon. And the and I and I'm just so thankful that Department of Defense has started initiating some programs to build that internal resilience, mm-hmm. to take that that the, you know the the adversity and the challenges of their mission, and try to leverage it into intentional personal gain, um, because it never stops. The military mission never stops. You're on deployment. It's it's and and that's this is the thing about being on deployment. So we're talking about high-stress adrenaline situations. 
um, you know, a fight or flight. Now, every organism in the world is designed to be able to handle fight or flight. But if you look at like a deer in nature, so it notices the cheetah, immediately it's aware of its body, how much time it has to get to a place of safety. Once, if it doesn't get eaten in between, you know, here and there, within 15 minutes, it's forgotten the situation, it's back to eating, grazing, boom, moved on. We live in a constant state of fight or flight. Now, when you take a military service member and you go over into a, an area of conflict, 24-7, 365 days, you are in danger. Your adrenal system is fried. Even when you're in the FOB, the forward operating base, and you're safe, there's RPGs. There's, I mean, there's situations. I've got friends that, you know, have, have had, you know, unit members killed by Afghanis in the FOB that they were training. So there are no safe zones is, is basically the point I'm getting to. Mm. So there's no letdown. And here's the problem. So when you come out of that environment, you have been in fight or flight for 365 days, 24-7. So how do you then deprogram yourself? So fortunately, the military is putting effort towards doing that. And, you know, working on the internal system, working on your internal neurology and reprogramming your thoughts and being, being just becoming aware of how to be present. And again, what we were talking about earlier, interpreting your own sensations. Mm. So they're putting a lot of effort and, and expense and, you know, some budget towards that. So fortunately, I've been blessed to bring all of my experience into that realm. And it's been awesome. And I, I recently got to do an archery clinic at the Air Force Base as well. And archery is therapy with a weapon. And there's nothing better. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really don't think there's anything better. Whether you're a, a young, young kid or you're 90 years old, you know, you got a pulse, you can, you can be, you, you know, you can succeed at archery. It's one of the things I love about it. It's, it's, it's the great equalizer. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to be fast. You don't have to be strong. You don't have to be young. You don't have to be anything. You just, you don't even have to have arms, you know? I mean, I've taught blind people how to shoot archery. There's ways to do it. And it's a very empowering activity. So. And you're a Paralympic archer, yes? Yes, yeah. yeah. I, I um, was blessed to be able to uh, earn the slot and claim the title as the first woman to represent the United States in women's open compound in the Paralympics. Wow. Which, you know, in, wow. in the year 2016 shocked me mm -hmm. that that had never been done before. Um, so, you know, one of my, one of my missions is to bring adaptive athletes, especially women into the sport because we need to grow the sport, you know, in, in, in Europe and other nations, Paralympics is actually larger than the Olympics. In our opening ceremony in Rio, we had more attendees for the Paralympic opening ceremony than we did for the Olympic. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Wow. And more We've ticket sales. It, over there, mm. they get that we're doing the same sport to really the same elite level with less parts, which is kind of sexy. I'm yeah, just saying. It is. I mean, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah totally. It's, it's, yeah. it's kind of sexy. Awesome. So, yeah. yeah. Maybe there aren't that many because you're just worried that women are going to run wild bare-chested with packs of dogs and... And uh, those arrows, should, you know. I think that should be a sport, but you know, yeah, you know I, I didn't get enough votes to vote it in. So, Dianists, you know, you know <laughs> armed with arrows, you know. Right. right.
Deathbringer arrows. There you go, Deathbringer arrows. I so need to name my arrows. That was you so do, adorable. You do. Yes. Truth wow. seeker. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, illusion crusher. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> archery right now right. me as an occupational therapist um you know i i, I my, my my inner therapy bell starts to go off when you start to talking about this because um to me archery for you would be what we call an occupation now an okay. occupation is not a vocation vocation mm-hmm. is job occupation is a is an activity that has meaning purpose right right and purposeful activities occupations mm-hmm. um have healing qualities to them. This is what we believe in occupational right. therapy, right? right? Like feeding yourself cereal with a spoon has healing qualities to it. Putting on your pants right. after you've had a stroke has some healing qualities to it. Right. I'm curious what you think about um, the healing qualities of archery and what it's done for you. Ah, uh, let me step you through the story then. So uh, after my amputation, um, because of my experience, I had a just a an amazingly positive attitude about it. I, I was never insecure about it. I was just like, this is who I am. Um, so my occupational therapist was, honestly, she's like, I, I, I don't understand why you're so positive about it, but can can you help me help others, you know, try to maybe bridge that gap between I'm now damaged and not enough and this this freak to like the mindset that you have. And I was like, oh my God, I would love that. So I started working with her and started working with um, touch bionics and then started working with hanger prosthetics and, and eventually um, thought maybe I would go into sports science to see if I can help some amputees. I just wanted to help disabled, and I hate that word, but you know, socially labeled disabled people bridge that gap between I'm not enough to damn, I'm awesome. Um, so eventually that led me to moving to California to working with a prosthetist, not a prostitute. Mm-hmm. Everybody yes. just like kind of gives me the, the, Wait a the you know, What's the I know, right? Prosthetist. Yeah. Prosthetist. Yes. Prosthetist. They make the artificial limbs. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, this is going to be a really great opportunity for me to to walk into an environment as an amputee and call them on their bullshit. Basically, listen, you can't you, you can't look at your prosthetist and say you don't understand, and this is what it's like, and 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 cry that victim card, card which I was really tired of hearing from from people. Um, and I rapidly learned that, yes, they can, because if they see themselves as a victim, they're going to be a victim. And it doesn't matter that I, I get it and, and they can't say you don't understand because they, they know I do. I have, I'm missing an arm. Uh, but if somebody wants to be a victim, they're going to be a victim. Um, so I'm in that environment in California and I'm, I'm frustrated because I, I'm not able to give this gift to them, which would totally set them free. And one day I'm in my office and I'm the office manager of this company and this big old redneck comes rolling in in this wheelchair and he's got you know one leg and he's missing his leg below his knee and he's missing his hand below his elbow and and I take him into the patient you know uh, exam room and we're just talking and you know and big old chew on his his mouth and he, he's he's obviously you know just country. So we just get to talking, and, and he's like, oh, so you like to, to hunt? And I was like, yeah, you know, I like to shoot. And he's like, so bow hunting? And I was like, no. I said, you know, I, I went into this store, 
I, I never l- learned how to shoot a bow before I you know, lost my hand. And I went into the store one day because my brother's a big bow hunter. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a way, right? So I went in and I was like, hey, is there, you know, can let me, let's figure out how I can shoot this bow. And they're like, bah! You know, <laughs> they're like, girl, you need two hands for that. Y'all's crazy. I'm like, okay, you know. And so I just kind of dropped it. I was like, well, it sucks, you know. And he just looks so offended. Huh. And he's like, you just wait right there. And he just wheels himself out of the room. I'm like, okay, what's that about? You know, so he wheels out and then he comes rolling in this like four foot round target. And he hands me this bow and he said, now I took a dog leash and I cut it and I sewed it onto the D loop. And he said, that's what you're going to put between your molars. So here's how you put the arrow on. He said, now just, you know, pull, bite back here and just pull back. And he said, and when you're ready, just kind of, you know, try to put the arrow in the center here and just open your mouth. And I did that. Then I was hooked. (laughs) <laughs> I was so hooked. I was like, oh, that's really powerful. You know, mm. I was like, okay, I want to do that. He's like, well, you know, I, I, you know, come up and his place was about 45 minutes away. He said, come up a couple times a week and, you know, I'll show you how to shoot. I was like, deal. He said, I, I said, I don't have a bow. He said, just use this one. So I was like, okay. So I came up, and, you know, a couple days later and, and he's, I was like, so how do I do this? He says, I, I don't care. He said, just aim it that way. And he said, the only thing I want you to uh, focus on is how you're gripping the bow. He says, it's not a pistol. Just push it away with your palm. So it was just one technique at a time. So start shooting and, you know, I do pretty good. And uh, so then he he's talking to me about something. And I was like, so this, and it, so the string hit my forearm, mm-hmm. which like, Hurts. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Some some road rash. There. Oh yeah. yeah. So, you know, the other people had forearm oh, guards. Like, yep. And I was like, maybe I should put one of those on. He said, Nope. I was like, why not? He said, because pain's the best teacher. Yep. I was like, okay, I can relate to that. I, all right, I get that. So he's telling me this, and so I draw back, I forgot to put an arrow in, and released. So when you release a bow without an arrow, it blows up because the kinetic energy has nowhere to go. You know, so I'm like really embarrassed because now I've just blown the strings and he's got to go repair the bow and everything. And so I come back a couple of days later and, and take a couple more lessons. And then he gives me this call and he's like, hey, so I'm going to go to this gun show. You want to come? I was like, oh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. awesome. He said, yeah, bring your bow. All right. Yeah, no problem. So I get there and this guy has a demo set up. And I'm supposed to demo how I shoot in front of like 60 people <laughs> and then teach them how to do it. I'm like, what? How, how, I just blew up a bow. He goes, I know. You know how not to do it now. I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, so he goes, oh, by the way, we're leaving next week and we're going to this competition. I'm like, I don't even know how to shoot. He said, am I your coach? I was like, God damn, I did say I'd do anything you want. I said, you know what? You're the only guy I've ever said that I'll just you know, trust you. I'll do whatever you want. So, all right, I'll go to this competition. So we go to this competition, and it's uh, the Valor Games in San Francisco, which is an amazing event put on for disabled vets and teach you all sorts of sports. So we get there, and there's just like rows of, of bows and targets and everything. And it's from like novice, never even picked up a bow to, you know, intermediate. And uh, so he has me show up, and, and we're standing there, and I'm kind of organizing the bows. And he says, hey, you see those guys over there in the wheelchair? Yeah, he said, I want you to go show them how to shoot. I said, God, I don't even know how to shoot. 
Remember, I just blew up a bow. He goes, remember, now you know how not to do that. Go show them how to shoot. It's like, okay, fine, whatever. So I go over and I was like, I, you know, here's kind of the basics. Here's what you don't do, you know, and just had them shoot. And it was, it was this one young kid and he was probably 24 and in this big mechanical wheelchair and former army kid and he'd got hit with an IED, improvised explosive device and paralyzed from the chest down. And, uh, oh, he just had so much fun. And I shot him how to shoot with his mouth because he had a, a left arm issue as well and just had a blast. And, you know, I go and, and I start practicing, competition starts and blah, blah, blah. And, and the next day I'm standing over on the field and I see him rolling up and he's got these, this, this little boy, blonde head, curly little boy bouncing on his lap and this little adorable daughter hanging on the back of the wheelchair with her arms around his neck and this gorgeous blonde that I'm assuming is his wife. And he comes up and he, he's got this medal around his neck. And he says, and he's got a little tear in his eye, and, you know, and I, I cry at the drop of a hat. And he's like, Sam, I just, I want to thank you. I was like, oh, what for? And he said, today is the first time I've felt like a man to my kids since I lost my legs. Wow. I'm like, oh, my God. Mm. This is what archery does. Wow. That's what archery does. Wow. It gave yeah. him his role back. Yeah. yeah, gave him his power back. And see, for me, archery um, is therapy with a weapon. So after that, I went home and I was living in an apartment and I couldn't make it, you know, with, with work and everything. I just couldn't make it to 45 minutes, you know, hour and a half every day. So I started shooting in my apartment. So I would stand at the end of my hall and shoot down my hall, through the living room, through my glass patio doors, which is really good incentive to not screw up. <laughs> right? right damage your things uh, blow yeah. out a glass patio door right, right. you know so it was the first time that i became really intensely aware of that little voice because in archery you have to be very present you have to be very centered and any distracting thought affects where the arrow goes mm-hmm and I became acutely aware of some of the negative voices in my head. And I thought they were gone. I mm. thought that, you know, you were mine in the ditch. I thought that that was a permanent thing. And here, and I had, the, the guy that I was working for was very, very toxic. And I had been hypersensitive and protective of my environment. But because of my desire to help amputees, I had like tolerated this thing, thinking it wasn't I was strong enough to, to fend off this negative energy mm-hmm. and this negative influence, and I found out it wasn't true. Um, and archery was the thing that clued me into that. And um, the, archery was the thing that really made me seek out um, how the subconscious mind works and the language of the subconscious, because that guy that introduced me to archery turned out to be a three-time Paralympian and current gold medalist. Wow. And he was the one that said, Sam, I think that you could make the next Paralympic team. It's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take total focus. He said, but archery is a skill, like anything else. Mm-hmm. Anybody can learn it. The difference between an average archer and a champion archer isn't a skill set. It's how strong you are between the left ear and the right ear. So if you're willing to go deep there, 
you can make it. So then I started studying mindset and subconscious programming and all of all of that stuff. Um, so archery for me was the greatest therapy that I think exists for anybody because you cannot, the, the thing with archery is if you take care of the process, the outcome takes care of itself. And the process starts with what are you thinking? And that's true in life. That smallest voice drives the outcome of your life. And it makes you hyper aware of that is, you know, what that is. So I would recommend it for all your patients. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You that's fantastic. Welcome. I yeah. like that double meaning there. I'd recommend it for all your patients. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Depending on how you choose Yours to spell that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Did you ever read Eugene Harrigal's Zen and the Art of Archery? I haven't. Um, and actually, it was my coach. He said, don't read it. Hmm. Hmm. So, well, you got to listen to your coach. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I did. That yeah. was the first novel I ever read in my entire life. Hmm. Was that was that really? book. Really? Yeah. Okay, so, hmm. so Cliff notes me. Well, maybe your teacher was right. Because I read the book and then I never became an archer, so mm. <laughs> maybe maybe he was he was very wise. But um, I read it a long time ago, so I, yeah, I, I've forgotten was, a lot. Well, a the the reasoning behind his his command it wasn't a recommendation. Was he and and he would never allow me. He said, "Sam, if I ever hear that you've gone on the internet and researched other countries and and women open compound archers and what their scores are or or anything like that. He said, I will no longer coach you. He said, because you don't need that shit in your head. You need to focus on only what I tell you. And he was a really amazing coach because Hmm. he just built things principle upon principle. You know, that day when he said, all I want you to do is concentrate on your grip. He built me one level at a time. Hmm. He said, but if, if, you know, and he... There were people saying, you need to shoot more than 10 yards. You need to shoot more than 10 yards. And he said, I will tell her when she needs to shoot more than 10 yards. Because he was looking at me with a different lens than I could see myself or anybody else. Wow, what a gift. Oh, he's an amazing, amazing coach. Wow. Amazing coach. And we got to shoot together in the Paralympics. As a matter of fact, he ended up shooting my arrows in the Paralympics. <laughs> wow. So it was, it, nice. was, it was just really, yeah, really, really wow. Was Deathbringer amongst those arrows? No, no. But I do have a really cool Paralympic story. Hmm. So um, I had switched from shooting mouth tab to shoulder harness, which was an abysmal mistake. Um, because you have this prosthetic that is molded to my shoulder, and then you have all this mechanical device, and then there's the angle. It's like a reverse trigger on a gun. Mm. So I would draw back, and there was a metal piece that would gently, you know, nudge on my chin, and as I'm, you know, just minute muscle movements, and it was supposed to supposed to release, and it was we never got it perfected, and uh, highly not accurate, and um, so we we get to the Paralympics, and it's the elimination round. And so um, my shooting process is every time, you know, I, I, I hook. So I visualize my arrow before I shoot it. So I visualize the whole process seconds before I shoot it. Because neurologically, your body doesn't know the difference between an imagined shot arrow and a shot arrow. So if I imagined the perfect shot arrow, it's just easier to follow that neurological pathway. So... You know, my opponent has two hands, so she can talk, boom, 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 six, you know, eight seconds, ten seconds. She's got her arrows off, so I'm I'm trying to reset my release, and she's like, boom, gone. 
So, which is fine. Um, but I went to hook my arrow and it wouldn't. And, and I'm like, three attempts, crap, put the bow down, reset it, come back, draw, write him as a draw, buzzer goes off. You don't get a second. I'm, so that's a zero. So at the Paralympic level, a zero arrow, you're done. Or are you? you know, I, never, I never lose. I either win or learn, right? So the thing with, with archery is the same thing with life. The only thing that matters is the arrow you're shooting now. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that matters is the moment you're living now. So she shoots, and I go back, and the next one's a 10. Because it doesn't matter that I may be out of that game, that competition. The only arrow that matters is the next arrow. You know, and, and I, I lost by you know, a few points, but only by points. I think I won because it didn't mentally crush me. And that was the fourth of, you know, it was only my fourth arrow in. And I think that that's one of the things that archery has taught me is that don't get too caught up on the outcome that you desire because it's, I want this or better. I have a much better story by having a zero scored arrow in the Paralympics, I think, than if I'd even won because I learned the mental skills that now I get to use for the rest of my life. Wow, that's beautiful. And it was, it was a beautiful, under-pressure proof. This was really great to have you on the show. I'm so glad um, that you were able to make it out here my all the honor. way from, from Idaho, yeah. Boise, where my sister's from. I know. Yeah. I still haven't run into her. You're going to run into her. It's going to happen. Yes. She works for Idaho Public TV. Yeah. So you, you will run into her. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. It thank was really great to have you on the show. Um, Satch, it's always oh. great talking with you, buddy. Oh, um, you too, my Good man. stuff. You too. Yeah. And uh, uh, Sammy, it was delightful. Yes, so so I feel so honored that we met. Thank you for for and thank you for that. Um, Just thank you for the heart and intent that you guys have behind this Mm -hmm. show. Thank you. Um, How how can people who've been listening to this and and uh, who know you or or are now familiar with you stay in touch with you? How could they connect with you more? You can find me on Facebook at at Sammy Tucker Inspires um, or my website SammyTucker.com. Email is Sammy at SammyTucker.com. So complicated. I know, right? How's anyone going to remember <laughs> yeah, that? Mm-hmm. And Sammy is S A M M I. No E. No, yeah. S A M M I. That's good. T U C K E R.com. And if you want to like Google archery stuff, um, Samantha Tucker. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you have it like, is it uh, YouTube stuff? Mm-hmm. YouTube and photos and things like that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Lovely. Well, it's going to be exciting to see what you're doing over even this next year and the next year after that. Really look forward to seeing all those changes and and the the ways in which you're influencing and sharing your gifts with everybody. Yeah, thank you. Meeting more people like you guys. Uh, Because we need the collective. There's so much power in the collective. So everybody has a story. And that's how we relate to people. That's how we connect us through our stories. So... You know, when people say, well, I don't have any, I don't have anything to say. Nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Yeah, we do. Because if you don't tell your story, you don't impact people. 
and you have no idea who feels like you do. You think you're alone, but you're not. You've been listening to The Authenticity Show with your hosts, Carlos Casados and Satch Purcell. Very special thanks to our guest, Sammy Tucker. The show is produced by Oliver Altine. Our theme music is composed by Oliver Altine. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And check out our website, authenticityshow.com. Thanks for listening and have an authentic day.